This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the truthayf.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together. This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors Inc. It's Friday, July 28th. Coming up on the show today, the world's leading consulting firm, McKinsey and Company, and their views on crypto. One of the most important tools in war. Camouflage. It's no longer enough to merely hide from human eyes, though. Thanks to technology, thermal sensors now cost only $1,000. They can detect a vehicle five miles away. New camouflage therefore tricks those electronic sensors. Multispectral camouflaging, it reduces radar reflections and heat signals. It fools not only soldiers, but thermal scanners by reflecting cooler wavelengths that are emitted by the ground. Multispectral camouflage nets can work in snowfields, deserts, urban areas, and in woodlands. They can hide soldiers as well as tanks. There are also appearance modulation systems that use cameras to alter their own temperatures to match that of nearby objects. And then there are adjustable visual camouflage. These are battery-powered sniper suits that have 500 LED lights embedded in the fabric. A helmet camera causes a light sensor to change the color and the luminosity of the LEDs to match the soldier's surroundings. They call this a Harry Potter cloak. And there's a company in British Columbia that's making camouflage coloration patterns that make objects appear invisible. Camouflage is not only big business in tech for the military. Detecting those that are camouflaged is also a big deal. Hyperspectral sensors use sophisticated data processing to determine not just an object's shape, but its composition. Am I looking at something that's foliage, fabric, metal? The technology even detects anti-tank mines that have been buried. All of this is meant to make one side more likely to win a war. Can you hide yourself from your enemy? Can you detect enemy that is trying to hide? You know, if all this sounds a little bit creepy, because we're getting good, we're getting better at war making, keep in mind that much of the tech that we use in our civilian lives began as tools for the military. So you can expect a lot of these products to find their way into commercial applications in years to come. Coming up next on The Truth About Your Future, my conversation with Matthew Higginson, partner at McKinsey and Company and his colleagues. Stay with us right here for the truth about your future. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. Automation and artificial intelligence are introducing new possibilities and upending the status quo before our very eyes. These exponential technologies are rapidly evolving, and the list of innovators leading the charge extends well past the big tech firms that dominate headlines. At Global X ETFs, we specialize in investments that look beyond household names, providing exposure to a range of companies at the leading edge of these disruptions and more. 
Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn how or contact your financial advisor. Support for Rick Edelman's podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Meet Carmen, an everyday person who likes working in the garden, hosting dinner parties with friends, and listening to live music. She also participates in progress by investing in a fund that supports innovative ideas. Invesco QQQ ETF allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100, so you don't have to be an engineer to help push progress forward. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You're listening to the Truth About Your Future podcast. Last month, I hosted the fifth annual Vision Conference in Austin, presented by my company, DACFP, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. Vision is the longest-running digital assets investment conference that's specifically for financial advisors and accredited investors. And at this year's conference, it was our biggest ever, attended by more than 125 financial advisors and investment professionals from all over the country. One of our sessions featured Matt Higginson and his colleagues of McKinsey. I wanted to share that entire conversation with you today. Here it is, unabridged and uncensored. I'm very happy to welcome on to this panel a very prestigious group of gentlemen from McKinsey and Company. We all know McKinsey, one of the most well-known and prestigious consulting and, and research firms across so many industries. We have Matt Higginson, who's a partner with McKinsey, Julian Saviano, who is also a partner, and Matthew uh, Deverne. Deverne, I, you know, I'm an American, not French, um, uh, who's an associate partner. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. You're going to find this really fascinating info as we talk about the whole point of commercial application of crypto. So many times I encounter people who say, what's it good for? It doesn't do anything. What do we need it for? Well, these three gentlemen are going to answer that question, and you'll have an opportunity to ask your questions as well, so get them ready. Matt, let let me begin with you. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, everybody knows McKinsey. The biggest companies in the world uh, are your clients. What are you hearing from them? Uh, What's the appetite for adopting blockchain solutions and digital assets into their businesses? Yeah, Rick, thanks for asking, and first of all, uh, thanks also for having us here. It's a, a great gathering, and our history goes back a long time, so... Get how many how many decades? But um, look, before we sort of get into what what are directly we're hearing the appetite, maybe it's helpful just to make sure we we frame this in terms of the sort of applications and things that we are talking to clients about, because it can be pretty diverse, right? A pretty diverse range. I think about uh, global networks, so networks that support things like trade finance, right? Trade finance was one of the big promises for blockchain a few years ago. I think about the use of blockchain for things like authentication and supply chains, and how do we track and trace goods and prove that. 
I think about applications in tokenization. We heard Roger talk about this, tokenizing financial you know, instruments, and how do we see efficiencies from that? I think about applications in currency. How do you do instant settlement, instant long-distance cross-border payments? And of course, crypto. And I think when we listen to the appetite from our clients, there's been a real bifurcation during the crypto winter. And what I mean by that is there were folks who are quite a long way down the path of building out real-world use cases, already applying them, running pilots, building out ecosystems. And those folks are running hard. Frankly, many of them are continuing. So when you look in things like the, the fashion industry for luxury goods, using track and trace, that's continuing. When we look at supply chain and compliance applications and things like automobile, that's continuing. But there's a different population who are saying, actually, I wasn't quite sure how this applied to my industry, and so we're not quite ready to invest anything more right now. And I think particularly a lot of our clients are very cost conscious. When we look at the business model behind some of these applications, it's maybe not so clear yet. And so one of the earliest things that gets cut is this kind of you know, additional spending on innovation. And so there's definitely been that separation. I think we'll get more into this, but there's a middle use case, which is in financial services, where frankly, several of our clients have said, you know what, we feel our position in the industry could be threatened by this technology. We heard earlier on about you know, trade and post-trade. We probably need to build some defensive moats here and, and grab the middle ground and start to build out the infrastructure. That's a little bit about what we're hearing I think my final point, just to start with, is that those clients who believe in the future of the technology are saying, talent is cheap right now, the assets are cheap right now, the, the ability to build the technology is cheap right now, so I'm going to push hard at the moment in anticipation of this industry kind of re resuming its climb, I know, in 12 months' time. So it's been a very clear separation. So does that mean that much of this is still in the lab and hasn't yet gotten into the marketplace? Look, I think there are definitely examples where this is in the wild today, and maybe I'll touch on a few of those. There have also been some pretty spectacular failures yeah. where, where we've seen you know, enterprises essentially go insolvent. I think those where we've seen real success, let me just, just list out a few and we'll go deeper, but... Um, one would be things like tokenization of cash. You know, look at the, you know, the business model of stable coins out there. We have $130 billion circulating, maybe trading up to $100 billion a day. That feels like it's starting to get some traction. I think we've seen tokenizing real-world assets. I think that's out of the lab. We're now in the wild with things like the, the money market fund we heard about, or bonds or other funds. I think there are probably examples in payments where you could say, yeah, technology is really being used. You know, the, the cross-border payment solution, the closed-loop solutions. And those examples I mentioned in like the, the high-value luxury goods industry and in things like automobile and manufacturing, in the wild, real-world use cases that I don't think you could say are still in the lab. But there have definitely been some challenges uh, one of the most spectacular is global uh, trade finance. Trade finance, which is riddled with like paper and faxes and manual processes, 
all of a sudden this technology was promising to digitize the whole thing and make us you know, a global economy running efficiently real time. And I think there have just been a string of examples this year, whether it's WeTrade or Marco Polo or Trade Lens or others, where unfortunately the banks saw the benefits of this, but the corporate world didn't see the business case to, to invest and use it. And, and we'll get into the whys later on. Uh, and, and so I'd like to uh, have you do that. I'm, I'm going to turn this over to Matt and so he can bring his colleagues, Julian and Matthew, into this conversation to talk about exactly that, the growing demand areas and, and how tokenization is really permeating the financial uh, ecosystem. So why don't you Yeah, so here. let's do that. So I'll, I'll frame it up. Matthew, pass to you first. I think in financial services, we're starting to see these green shoots of saying, tokenized assets on a blockchain are a better mousetrap than what we have because of a number of different things. So maybe with that, I'll, I'll tee you up yep. and explain like what that looks like, what we're seeing tokenized, and what some of the benefits may be. Yep. I think what's been really interesting uh, relating to what you're saying earlier, Matt, in the last two, three years is two, three years ago, we were in a growth environment. We were at a, a, a crypto high. Um, and a lot of our clients were setting up teams to think through what's the impact and the opportunities to a certain extent, the threats um, that blockchain can create. Now, fast forward two years, come to, to today, we're in a bit of a tighter environment. Um, we're in a bit of a, a lower uh, a crypto cycle. And uh, our clients are now like, okay, so what value can we actually really drive and generate from a revenue standpoint and cost standpoint from a blockchain technology? And um, the examples we're seeing are all tied really to the, the technology itself, that it's 24-7. Um, that it has atomic settlement or near instantaneous settlement, as we touched on earlier, uh, and programmability. Um, and some of the benefits that we see really tied to specific use case or asset classes today are we talked about capital efficiency earlier and the fact that because we can settle uh, much faster within a few minutes or, or milliseconds, um, we can prevent some of the lock capital before, in particular, in, a, in an environment today where uh, interests are high. Well, one use case is that really, I think, is out of the lab is uh, tri-party repos. Today, there's about 70 billion of daily tokenized trades of tri-party repos uh, on blockchain. Um, another example, if we think of it, another benefits of the, the operational efficiencies uh, that we discussed earlier, um, obviously on, on money market funds, but there's other asset classes. If we look at uh, corporate bonds, for instance, where there is significant servicing of the asset throughout the life cycle, we hear from our clients that not only are there costs from a manual standpoint, but there's costs also in terms of penalties or fines when you miss, say, a coupon payment uh, or you have an inaccurate coupon payment. If you're able to embed this into the smart contract, you eliminate a lot of those, uh, a lot of those fees. Um, and we've seen that with um, early issuances. Siemens uh, issued a, a 60 million corporate bond. Um, we talked about, uh, about in, um, enhanced transparency and, and compliance. I'll just mention one great example of that is, uh, is carbon credits. It's a new asset class that has significant validation and verification requirements throughout the life cycle and up until retirement, being able to have this on chain and to be able to track the asset, make sure that there's no double counting, which is a, a significant risk when it comes to, uh, to carbon credits, uh, can be significantly simplified or effectively automated on the, on the token if you have it on chain. Maybe the last point I'll touch on, um, which is in my mind extremely exciting about uh, tokenization is democratization of access. You've probably heard of fractionalization. But all the benefits that it creates in terms of savings effectively allow to lower the entry ticket, and I think it's very interesting for, for, for this audience, but into asset classes that today um, require 10, 20 million um, entry tickets. One example is private equity. 
the ability to uh, move uh, in, onto the smart contract, a lot of the tasks that are done manually today means that you can lower that entry, uh, entry point and the asset owners or the issuers, the private equity funds, for instance, can access a whole new set of capital that don't access today, whether it's high net worth or even in the longer term potentially retail. And those investors can access a set of uh, uh, assets uh, that they don't aren't able to, to access today. And again, we've seen, uh, I think more than pilots today, we've seen large names, KKR, uh, Hamilton Lane, uh, Apollo uh, also announcing that they will move to this. So it, there's significant real use cases and exciting use cases we see in the financial ecosystem. So maybe just to, to put some scale around some of these applications. So I think we're all familiar that the, the crypto market cap is stayed just north of $1 trillion. If you look at the tokenization of these other assets, maybe cash is at $130 billion, something like that. But many of the others are in the low tens of billions tops, right? Whether it's, we're talking about things like a, a crypto fund or whether it's things like the, the, the private equity examples, they're small. And I think if you compare that with the total addressable assets of hundreds of trillions today, it's a tiny fraction. So the question we've got then is like, you know, what's going to happen? Where are we in this classic S-curve that we've seen describe many innovations in the past? Are we nearly done with crypto? Are, are, we, are we through the cycle and now we're just kind of petering out? Are we partway through? Maybe with cash, we're just starting to see tokenization of cash. Are we right at the very beginning with things like tokenized bonds and funds? And so when you think about like, the trajectory of this and wh where the industry is going and should you be paying attention and investing, I think the inevitable answer is we are very early in many of the asset classes. We are a fraction of 1% has gotten tokenized with a way to go forwards. Julian, I want to come to you to talk about the, the how and the why then. Because if we are truly at sort of day one of this S-curve with many of these new asset classes, like, What's it going to take, and what are some of the challenges? Yeah, so, I mean, I think part of it is just, it's just a nascent industry. And I think, you know, if you start, not in the obvious, we'll talk about the R word at the end, but yeah. if we talk about just how the technology is evolving, like many of our conversations with our clients are really about the art of the possible, because they're just beginning to learn how the technology can help them and how the technology can drive either efficiency or new opportunities in the financial space, and we're going to talk later also about non-financial applications, the industry itself is you know, solving for its inherent challenges that it has, right? There are lots of challenges that they have on scaling. There's, you know, there's many different blockchains that have different strengths and weaknesses, um, and they have to solve for those in order to solve, in order to help more efficiently solve different issues. So I think that that's a key issue. Um, there are UI and UX problems, so user interface, and you know, this is not an easy technology to use necessarily. Um, it's getting easier, but for consumer-facing solutions, for example, there's, you know, most of these things are still quite cumbersome and quite challenging. And then there's always there's a you know, privacy and transparency kind of conundrum, uh, which bleeds a little bit into the regulatory requirements, but it not, doesn't just bleed into the regulatory requirements on knowing your customer and things like that. It also really bleeds into the utility that you're trying to drive out of a solution versus how much you want the world to know about what you're doing and about your business as well. Um, and then if we get to the regulatory piece, this is always save the best for last. 
Um, you know, obviously in the U.S. we're dealing with uh, a lot of regulatory uncertainty um, and a lot of curveballs. Um, and outside the U.S., in some cases, there's a little bit more regulatory certainty. But if we think about capital markets, for example, there's just a tremendous amount of a lack of coordination and completely different types of regimes and requirements. So if you're trying to issue assets that can be available on a global scale, it's incredibly difficult to do, if not impossible. In fact, it is impossible to do at this point in time. So there's a lot that needs to happen in order to be able to enable greater and more mass adoption. Yeah. Maybe to, to pick up on this theme about, though, out of the lab and kind of into the real world, I was encouraged by what Roger was saying earlier on about the fact that you know, these are real assets that you can purchase, invest in, trade in, use as collateral. That is the significant shift, I think, of the last year or so. Is this this shift away from, hey, we can do a private experiment below the radar, but frankly, it's internal to whatever organization, to go into a point where we can start to see these assets being available and my sense so far is that if we can begin to quantify the benefits, whether that's on the cost side or the potential revenue side, then that will begin to enhance and, and accelerate this adoption path right up the ESCO. Maybe just coming back to this piece on regulation, Julian, I think you know, a lot of folks in the audience are probably nervous about the status of tokenized assets and clearly nervous to invest significantly in something where there's a lack of clarity. Can you comment on maybe where we are with regulation as opposed to predicting the future? Like, what's your sense? Sure. I mean, so if you go back to traditionally a regulator's mandate has been, I mean, similar to what, the, what Roger said in the prior panel, if it quacks like a duck and it acts like a duck, it's a duck. And from a regulatory perspective, what a regulator would always say is, you know, same activity, same risk, same rules, right? And the challenge with that is this is a different technology. Um, that doesn't suggest that the rules should not apply, but they might need to look slightly different, right? And I think that that's where there is a lack of clarity in the industry right now with regards to how do we actually comply with the requirements for issuing different types of securities, either as digital natives and or as a twin on a blockchain? How do we comply with disclosure requirements? How do we comply with consumer protection or investor protection requirements? How do we comply with AML KYC requirements? Right, those, that guidance has not been given, right? and, it's not, and it has not been given in a consistent way. Co compound that in the US with the fact that you have kind of a multitude of different regulators at the state and federal level. You've got banking regulators at the federal level that uh, supervise a limited amount of digital asset custodians. At the state level, you have a patchwork of digital asset custodians that are registered in 40-some-odd states with a couple of states that actually issue trust and or bank licenses for these types of entities. And the underlying supervision of those activities, these firms that actually safeguard these digital assets, is frankly quite weak with a couple of exceptions. Right? That doesn't bode well for you having confidence as a fiduciary in where you're parking your customers' assets or the underlying private keys. That's just a fundamental problem, and it's a challenge that no regulator has come to the fore to do yet. At the federal level, you know, under the prior administration, they tried to do that in the OCC, um, and then that kind of changed. And now you have a very bifurcated approach between the Fed and the FDIC and the OCC. 
Um, never mind the capital markets uh, and debt markets regulators where you have the CFTC and the SEC, um, which are basically, I think, at this point, the SEC in particular, really, you know, everybody seems to believe that they are kind of, um, they, they are basically, their supervision is by enforcement, right? Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty, and it's very difficult to build on that uncertainty. Um, and there are court cases that will take a while to kind of play themselves out before some of this uncertainty is clarified. And, you know, that leads to what we see in the headlines as many firms actually looking for opportunities abroad, right, where there might be some other regimes. In Europe just passed the markets in crypto assets, the MICA regime, which does provide a very clear path for licensing, a very clear path for permissibility, what can firms do and what can't they do, and it provides some guidance on how they need to comply with certain requirements. Um, in the Middle East, there are similar guidance. In Singapore and Hong Kong, there are other regimes that have similar guidance. And I think that's what's needed uh, is a more coordinated approach from a regulatory perspective in the U.S. So, so maybe let's put a, a more of a, a positive spin a little bit on this, which is I think in addition to this evolution along an S-curve as these assets begin to evolve and potentially grow in terms of, of, of demand, I think the regulatory environment, all we can say is that it is likely to become clearer, right? Mm -hmm. We are going through a transitionary environment. But over what period of time is that going to occur? That's hard to speculate. Yeah. Well, I think in many ways... That's, no, no, speculate. That's why you're on stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say in many I ways... about this. <laughs> Uh, in many ways, I think demand, st demand will dictate, will, will, will speed it up, right? It's a, if there is more demand in the market for these types of assets, it will push the regulators to move forward. And demand in, in, in the U.S. and demand abroad as well. So Congress of, is trying to create that urgency. We've got the new bill yep. put out last uh, couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. What do you see? You know, we, we heard from Lee uh, earlier today uh, from the Texas Blockchain Council, who's not optimistic that that bill will pass this year. What's your viewpoint? What we've heard in the industry is that um, we don't think any significant crypto regulation will pass because it's not a priority within, within a, the year that we have right now, right? It's, it's in, we're in an election cycle. Um, the other challenge with that bill is that it's still only, it doesn't have democratic sponsorship yet. Um, that doesn't mean that it won't. It doesn't look that dissimilar from the Lemus-Gillibrand bill, which did have bipartisan support. Um, both of those bills provide very fundamental building blocks. Right? Just like there's a lot of geeky stuff in there that doesn't get the headlines that is incredibly important, like defining what a qualified custodian is. That's really important for digital assets. Defining what good control location looks like. That's just a fundamental thing that as custodians you need to know, and as fiduciaries you need to know what that definition is. So if that doesn't pass this year, I don't see anything happening until after the election. Do you agree? I think that's broadly what we're, we're hearing, which is certainly not much optimism to try and you know, do it before the end of next year. Which means that the election will be pivotal for the future of crypto because the two parties have very different views. Do you agree with that? I, I, you know what I struggle with is I struggle with... Um, I don't know that that will always be the case. Right? I, I think right. that there's a kind of an oppositional, I believe this, so the other party has to believe that. And that can change because I don't, if you think about some of the underlying benefits, both parties should be believing in those underlying, in, in the underlying benefits. of The politicalization of crypto is a relatively new phenomenon. Yep. And it is all the rage at the moment. There was a period uh, over the last decade where there was a lot of bipartisan support for this. Mm -hmm. I think uh, FTX had a pretty big adverse impact 
and has changed the tone uh, in yeah. a lot of ways. There's also a new level of debate about CBDCs and the, and the issue of government control and privacy. So uh, what's it going to take to unwind all that? I just might, might wait one distinction, though, which is the regulation around protecting consumers investing in crypto is quite different, I think, than how we're going to see this evolve with all the other digital assets that we've already touched on. You know, when you look at tokenization of bonds and funds and mutual funds and money market funds, this sort of tokenization of assets, I think, is, should be set aside from the crypto piece. I think there is real intent to protect the, cons the unwitting consumer on crypto and crypto-related activity, mm -hmm. which hopefully gets separated from actually what I think is a very powerful use case that will, over time, change our industry, which hopefully comes under a more sensible regulatory regime. But if that's true, we need to separate the two. What yeah. does that mean for action steps for this audience uh, and for investment advisors around the country? Does that mean we sit on the sidelines so this gets figured out, or do we engage, and if so, how? I think you start to see, I think what you start to see is that it actually there's, and it's, you've already seen it over the last several years, right? The, industry, the digital asset industry itself has been raising the bar themselves. Even if they haven't been explicitly told to do implicitly, if they want to engage with traditional financial institutions, they know they need to build stronger infrastructure. They know they need to have stronger controls. They're no longer tiny little workshops, right? They've got a thousand person teams, they've got 150 people in compliance, they're building solutions to what they think would be industry grade, right? That, I think, is a phenomenon that you begin to see, and maybe you start thinking about what sort of infrastructure will support kind of institutional grade digital asset solutions that, that, that then can support this industry. Julian? And yeah, maybe the, the one thing I'd oh. add is, if we come back to the, the S-curve question, one of the pieces that is still missing in development is just at scale distribution of, of these assets. And I'm referring to the second category Matt was, was alluding to is, for example, tokenized private equity fund or tokenized as, real assets. Um, being able to access those investors who would benefit from this fractionalization, but it's a different type of investors that today don't invest directly in private equity. And building that distri distribution capability to unlock that capital today is still not fully developed. There's no at-scale distributor that's providing that. And that will be, I think, critical unlock to create the revenue upside from the tokenization. Maybe just, just build that. I'll come back to you on the, this question around what are the other indicators across the industry that actually, you know, applications of blockchain, particularly tokenization, are gaining hold? And Matthew, I might come back to you just on this question of what are we seeing in terms of things like custody and analytics and KYC? Because those would be the right building blocks, right? That would be the enabler for the industry. Yeah. I think what we're hearing in terms of enabler is there's niche providers, there's some digital native providers that will offer some KYC, there's some digital native providers that will provide some the, the issuance or tokenization part. There's no established institutional grade one-stop shop that will uh, provide that solution, and that's a bit lacking to provide the credibility um, to issuers who are looking to, to issue those assets or institutional investors who are looking to, um, to invest. And so our clients um, are looking to develop and build that infrastructure, whether it's via partnerships or whether it's in-house. To Matt's point earlier, there's um, today talent, there's cheap technologies, there's ability to do it in-house. 
um, but it's not yet fully developed. And that will be a critical enabler is having that institutional grade, almost one-stop shop across these different services um, to uh, fully yeah. scale the technology. And, and I think this comes back to your question, Rick, which is what, what can we all expect? What can we do in the industry? I think it is to raise the bar on that expectation of what services are available to investors. Where can I have institutional grade custody solutions so I know my assets are being held safely? Where can I see institutional grade trading and post-trade services? Who's doing compliant KYC? Who's doing the on-chain analytics that will help me understand where and how to invest? That, that chain exists in pieces today, but I think we're going to start to see even some of the existing incumbents moving more and more into that space to be that one-stop shop. And that, again, would be the signifier of this is a, an industry that's starting to mature. You mentioned that there were some promising elements, uh, areas of opportunity, but there have also been, you also said, some, some spectacular failures. Uh, one that comes to mind is Australia uh, and their efforts to move their financial markets into using blockchain tech. They spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time. They were one of the first stock exchanges to, to try to do this, and it, they abandoned it after a while. Talk about the Australian experience, lessons learned, what are the implications of, of what happened? Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll start and give some, some thoughts on that and feel free to jump in. I mean, for those less familiar with this, so this was the Australian stock exchange that very early on decided that they would replace their existing chess system with what was basically a blockchain based issuing trade settlement solution end-to-end -end. Um, and went with uh, digital assets at the time were very much you know, the leading thinkers, the technology providers in this space. And I think way back in, I'm going to guess 16, something like that, pretty early on, we're like, okay, I see the future, right? Theoretically, this stuff makes sense. We should be able to do real-time settlement. There should be the transparency, the auditability. This should be automated, all the benefits, Right, that we've heard over the years. I think it's a great example where all of those things felt and sounded right, but we were very early in the development of the technology. When you think about the number of new blockchain protocols that have evolved since, the evolution of smart contracts, the utility of blockchain that's evolved over now seven years is so dramatic that you look back and go, yeah, right idea, but a real challenging technological problem to solve. I think, though, that misses the point, which is, at the end of the day, most of the blockchain applications that are gaining traction are doing so in a way that all of the participants receive benefit. So when we talk about things like you know, the automobile industry, where we're solving problems about audit and compliance, where the suppliers, the manufacturers, the auditors, the regulators all get some benefits. In the case of the ASX, it wasn't apparent, I don't think, early on that that benefit would flow back to the whole of the industry. And, and I'm not close enough to see exactly the mechanics of what's happened since, but I think when we look at use cases today, we have to ask that question, do all the participants in the application actually see revenue and value flowing, flowing back to them? So they were simply too early, and they were simply too short-sighted um, in the development of the project. I don't want to sound critical of the project, but I think you know, you, your words are right, which is, I think, too early, maybe a little short-sighted, also not appreciating the investment it's going to take for everybody to adopt right, into that system. So are we not going to see this by others, or are they 
what's the lesson learned? Those are the errors made. We can see those. But what does that yeah. mean for further yeah. development? Well, like, I, I think there is evidence already in market. There are digital asset exchanges that now exist. And you know, many of them are really now focusing their attention on the institutional investor. And so maybe it is just a timing thing. And, and think about the right constructs so that the right investors are coming in, the right buy-side, sell-side participants are involved, and that there is real financial benefit flowing back to the participants. It's a sort of different construct to get there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the, the one thing I'd add is, I think now that there's a clear lens of, uh, as you think of digitizing uh, or tokenizing an asset class, what is the true benefit from both sides, from a supply and demand side? Yeah. So I mentioned the private equity case where it's pretty clear. If you look at sort of equities, there's a bit more of an open debate of, like, we can pretty much trade equities almost 24-7 today. Is there really a, a need to tokenize equities? So there's asset class by asset class. I think now there needs to be a real question of what are the benefits for the specific asset class of, of tokenizing? And the second thing I'd say is, um, I think the industry views that we, we won't necessarily move immediately from traditional rails to digital rails. There's likely going to be a, a progressive shift, what we call the sort of digital twin model, where you may have in parallel your traditional custody, if I think of, again, the, the private equity example, the custody of the actual certificate, and then there is a tokenized version of that certificate on chain, and you have the custody of that uh, uh, digital version of the certificate. And building an ecosystem that allows for that progressive transition because you then bring all the existing value chain participants on, on board and you create that alignment yeah. is likely to be critical for something that can also meet regulatory requirements and um, the general appetite. And building on your point, you know, today, you know, there's any number of, you know, between five and ten intermediaries required to take an asset from digitizing it to actually trading it and delivering post-trade active, post-trade services, right? And anyone and every single one of those intermediaries that underlie that activity right now, they're all still very, fairly immature and nascent. In the traditional world, in the traditional financial services world, every single one of them are considered financial market infrastructure, right? They have to abide by the highest standards of controls. They just simply can't do that right now. They're just, they're just, they just don't have the scale to do it. They don't have the knowledge to do it. They don't have the ability to do it. That will happen over time. So we're discovering that this past couple of years have been really interesting, that, that it has really helped us focus on a, a, a fundamental element in the world of crypto. Um, there are two pieces to this. One are the coins themselves. When you look at Bitcoin, look at Ethereum, down 70% in value, bouncing back significantly so far this year. And they've done that repeatedly throughout their uh, histories. Separate from the coins and the tokens themselves are the crypto companies, uh, the companies that are developing these tech, uh, these technologies, the companies that are uh, the crypto exchanges and the crypto custodians and the various platforms, cold wallet providers, and you know, the list goes on and on and on. And we saw in 2022 in particular, a bunch of these companies flat out go away. Um, BlockFi and um, Celsius and... Three Arrows, and you know, we all know the list of companies that have done this. It raises the basic question, because this is a fundamental concern of advisors from the investment thesis perspective, should I buy Bitcoin or should I buy a Bitcoin miner? Should I invest in coins or should I invest in companies? 
For example, there is a crypto SMA, which invests directly in the coins and tokens through an SMA structure. You know, we talked about Chris King earlier. You'll meet him at this conference. He's in the exhibit hall. And then there are uh, crypto ETFs uh, offered by GlobalX and Invesco, um, who are also here in the exhibit hall. Which is the approach? I mean, you could argue that the company fortunes may fail all the way to worthlessness and bankruptcy, et cetera, but the coins survive. Mm -hmm. So which, from an investment thesis perspective, from an investment strategy, which is the proper path for advisors? Should we be going the coin route or the company route? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll I'll start. Again, you can jump in. I I would step out. What's, What's your goal? here, right? I think there is an ease of which today, even as an institutional investor, you can directly purchase coins and you can do self-custody, right? We can actually all send them to a little, you know, cold wallet, USB stick version, stick it in your safe, lock it away like we can as individual investors. But I get the sense that's not what investors necessarily want. And in fact, we're seeing more and more demand to get return on those investments, in which case, can I buy something that's not coin, that gives me exposure to coin, that allows me to earn some yield on that investment, allows me to collateralize and use it for something else? And so I think there is this growing demand for whether it's a basket of a fund with a basket of coins, maybe it's thematic funds, maybe it's very specialized actively managed funds, actually, that give me access to cutting edge technologies in this space. As an example, we're hearing demand for, can I get access to a fund that actively invests in DeFi or in Metaverse or something else like that where I don't have time to invest, but I want to get exposure to that myself. And so I think there's, there's two different outcomes here. One is, I just want to buy and hold, in which case that's been the same case for a dozen years, and you can go do that, and you can go buy and send it to your cold storage. Or you can now go down this route with ETFs or potentially revenue and earning, earning yield on those. And I'm seeing and hearing more and more demand from that. And I think we're just starting to figure out what are the right structures to put together to offer that in a grown-up way. Yeah, and I think you have maybe two different types of rubrics for how you do due diligence on coins versus how you do due diligence on companies that are in the digital assets or big blockchain space, right? And on coins, you really you need to understand the underlying product projects. You need to understand the actual rights and or benefits that that coin might be able to provide the holder or not. You need to understand the legal structure under which it's been issued. You need to understand how it may or may not be complying with certain rules or laws, all of those things. There are a lot of things. You need to understand how, you know, how much liquidity there is, who's holding it, all of those things. There's, there's a lot of other structures to think about that are, it's a slightly, it's a different way of thinking. And if you think about, for example, underlining a Bitcoin miner, you know, this is where a lot of the bank, a lot of the lenders ended up in trouble because they thought about lending to Bitcoin miners as if they were lending to doing equipment financing, right? I'm just going to finance against ASICs. Well, that's great. But when Bitcoin is at 50,000 and ASIC is worth X, when it's at 20,000 and ASIC is worth X minus whatever it's worth, right? So they underwrote the equipment and not the actual industry itself, right? And that created a big problem. So it's not that different from actually doing doing underwriting or due diligence based on how you're thinking about investments in, in all kinds of industries. And, yeah, and just, sorry, just one point to add, I think we are seeing more and more 
of the Web3 native or fintech companies that actually have the innovative solutions now partnering up with the incumbents. Because ironically, investors want to be able to trust in the brand, the reputation of whoever's provided that service. And you know, Web3 native companies have the technology but don't have the trusted brand. The incumbents have the trusted brand but don't have the technology. So I think we're seeing more and more of these sort of partnerships and mergers uh, happening. And I think that will continue in order to open this up to a broader investment. And that, and that argues for the company route because of the M&A activity, which you know, mm-hmm. really capitalizes on stock growth and the leverage that occurs with all of that. So yeah. uh, anything to add, Matthew? Uh, maybe the only thing I'd add is there's obviously different considerations in liquidity profile that you're looking at, whether you're looking at buying the, the, the coin or the, the supporting infrastructure company. So I think everything else. So this is why we have these very different types of exhibitors in the exhibit hall, because as you're discovering, some of them give you the direct access to the coins, uh, or packaging of coins, or management of coins, and others are giving you the access to the companies uh, in managed and indexed ways, so that you can decide what works best for your client and your practice management, because it isn't a right or wrong, this is all part of uh, the judgment, but... um, it's a fundamental question that we all have to answer for our practices, uh, no question. And any questions uh, from you? We've got a microphone coming uh, right over here. Thank you. Um, so if we look at this as any other technology on the, as, it, as it emerges, right? So if we go back to the PC, eventually you had the PC model, you had Apple, right? PCs tended to win out really early, right, because they, had, they were easy to adapt. Right, the businesses adapt, grab them. When we get into internet, right, whoever is able to make money, Amazon just comes out, right, eventually, uh, survives and and thrives, right. Ease of doing business. Same thing with Google, ease of use. In this marketplace, right, in this technology and blockchain specifically, the coins are a whole. I think a completely separate discussion. But in blockchain, if we're advising business owners. Right, especially small business owners. I think on corporate America, they're gonna they're gonna pick a, an, a lane, and they're gonna develop their piece. They got the capital to do that. Small businesses are gonna have to plug and play to make money here. Uh, speak specifically to trucking, right? Trucking, the independent truckers are you get into intermodal. They're gonna have to deal with Maersk and all the other companies, right, who are tracking their boxes. How are they going to be able to decide how to? to capitalize because they really need the efficiency. They have very low margins, but they could increase those margins from maybe 3% to somewhere around 7 or 8%, maybe even 10 And they could compete and grow their businesses and treat their businesses like an investment. So how could they capitalize in the blockchain technology? Who's, who are emerging as maybe the two or three top players that it would be easy, ease of doing business and plug and play for, middle, for, for these small businesses and would be adaptable. That's where we could actually see, well, that long term, what, regardless of what happens in the next two, three years in regulatory, right? We all know that's political. Um, but, but ultimately, we could be helping our clients, either as small business owners or as individuals, position to accumulate some of those assets now while they're cheap, yeah. right? So yeah. how do we know? Who are those players right there, right? That's not readily available information without serious research. Right? Maybe, yeah, maybe I can start. So um, it, you, trucking is a good example. There's actually, and I can't remember the name, the exact acronym, but there is an association of truckers or transportation companies that have come together to explore different blockchain solutions. 
Right, so I'm not going to answer the question, but I will basically say that they're directly, but indirectly, the, this, you know, this association is exploring different options. And what's really interesting about logistics more broadly, not just trucking, right. is again, this speaks to like, we don't exactly know what it's going to be, what blockchain technology will solve for, because the most obvious is supply chain that is already in the, in the market, and there are certain solutions that are, are being tested. But there are really interesting emerging uh, solutions around fleet management, around real-time telemetry of, of vehicles, and around being able to absorb all that information and get it, around having vehicles basically carry their own value, be able to self-charge themselves or self... I mean, there's just so many different things that blockchain technology and its derivatives can do that are just now being explored. And so I think from that perspective, uh, you know, I would look towards these industry consortiums and understand what they're, what they're building on and what, right, what sort of technology they're leveraging. And, and in terms of what they're building on, there, there's definitely two, two, two options going on out there at the moment. One is the public permissionless blockchains. Frankly, we've heard about several this morning, right? Issuance on Stellar, issuance on Polygon, historically issuing on Ethereum. I think that model has real value in that we're using blockchains that at the moment are being used at scale. They have some degree of adoption. They have utility. And therefore, you can see that's a route to actually scaling the application. At the same time, there are lots of folks out there saying, actually, I don't want a truly public permissionless blockchain where anybody can be potentially become a node and therefore get access to the full stack. I want to be part of a private instance, either a private blockchain or a private instance of one of those public chains. And we're not advocating for either one right now because I think it's a little bit horses for courses. But I would just caution to say, if you're looking to engage with a consortium, involve in a business case, build something out, be super critical and objective on, are we actually deriving value from this? Is it delivering a business case with benefits? Or am I just following this like FOMO, mustn't miss the, the wave? Because I think that has been the, the lesson learned from the last few years. One of the frustrations you raise is the difficulty in identifying who these companies are. I think you'll get a lot of those answers in the exhibit hall. Talk to GlobalX, talk to Fidelity and Invesco and Bitwise and others who are there because they are familiar with those companies because they're putting them in their indexes. They're putting them into their funds. So they can tell you how they're going about identifying and how they're determining who to include and exclude and the reasons why. I think that could be a good jumping off point. And you can either decide this is how you can follow that path and do it yourself or delegate it to them the way you do other ETFs. So I think that would be a good way to go about it. Time for one more question. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm curious about what inroads are being made um, with entrenched business models like the real estate settlement process, titling, and foreign exchange. What's, what's new on those fronts that have massive entrenched uh, business models and the disruptive nature of blockchain to take away their punch bowl? When is it coming and who will lead the way? <laughs> I love these crystal ball questions. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll start. We're, well, you we're are McKinsey, time. after all. Yeah. So. Um, okay, let's take those two things, real estate and, and FX. On the real estate side, the promise has been I can tokenize these great big hulking illiquid assets. I can fractionalize them. I can find liquidity. I can use that tokenized asset for something. And I think, actually, it's a pretty powerful promise. 
I would say we've been approached by a number of organizations, particularly big infrastructure funds, to, to look at what it would take to do that. What's missing, of course, is the actual ecosystem around it that says, yeah, I've got buy side, sell side, liquidity, demand to do this. And I think that gives us some, some, some grace time to say, I don't know how long before it gets there. We are seeing the first buildings and infrastructure projects getting tokenized, but going back to that S-curve, we are... Yeah, we've got the huge building in Dubai. We've got um, the St. Regis and Aspen. Aspen, exactly, uh, yeah. But, but, you know... Onesies and twosies. The fact that we can name two is a problem. <laughs> exactly. It, so I think super early. Likewise, on the FX side, as we see the tokenization of fiat currency, whether that's stable coins, whether it's you know, the central bank digital currencies or others, that, that is step one. To me, the real exciting thing would be, can we actually replace traditional FX desks with some of these constructs coming out of DeFi, like the automated market makers, that basically just create these automated contracts that rebalance depending on the availability of one currency or another and automatically reprice. We're not there. But again, the ability to do it is there. We just haven't seen any of the shifts to really take it seriously. And on the latter one, my analogy is always, what happened to cross-border payments? You know, t 10 years ago, when I was, I was early in my days at McKinsey, there was this shift from traditional corresponding, correspondent banking into kind of same-day cross-border, and it's taken 10 years to get to where we are today. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank our speakers, Matt, Julian, and Matthew from McKinsey and company. Gentlemen, thank you very much. That's my conversation with the folks from McKinsey at the fifth annual DACFP Vision Conference in Austin. In coming weeks here on the podcast, I'll be presenting you with additional conversations from the conference. Right now, though, you can check out the photos and other highlights of Vision. It's all on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, and the links are in the show notes. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. With volatile fuel prices and growing concern about the environment, consumers are embracing alternatives. Should your portfolio do the same? At Global X ETFs, we specialize in investments that look beyond household names, providing access to companies in emerging areas like electric vehicles and lithium battery production. So whether you're interested in EVs, hydrogen fuel cells, or another green technology, there is a world of opportunity to explore. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn more. Meet Schwab Intelligent Income, a simple, modern way to pay yourself from your portfolio. Overcome the complexity of income needs in retirement with automated tax smart withdrawals that you can start, stop, or adjust at any time without penalty. Plus, ongoing monitoring so you'll always know where you stand. And since lower fees means more money for you to invest, you pay no advisory fee. Available with Schwab Intelligent Portfolios. Visit schwab.com slash intelligent income, a modern approach to wealth management. Hey, if you've got a little downtime this summer, who doesn't? You can catch up on past episodes of this podcast at thetafe.com. You know we cover the five personal finance topics that matter most. Longevity, retirement security, exponential technologies, digital assets, and health and wellness. It's thetafe.com. The link is in the show notes. See you Monday.
The truth about your future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truthayf.com. 